At this time, we're going to dismiss first graders and younger to Children's Church. So we have kind volunteers today. I talked to some of them earlier. We're thankful for them to do this on an Easter Sunday. So thank you very much if you're teaching and leading. On Thursday of this past week, I was enjoying some small talk at a basketball practice, talking to a fellow basketball dad, and the small talk turned rather interesting. I've been small talking with this man for probably about a year, and I said, what are you guys doing this weekend? Are you traveling? Any special plans? And he said, no, not really. Uh, what about you? How, how many, you have a lot of extra services? And I thought, in my mind, that's interesting because... I've never told him I'm a pastor, so I don't know how he knew, if it's just the name tag or what it is, but anyway, so <laughs> I, I was encouraged, I was happy that we're going to actually get somewhere in our conversation, and so uh, I said, well, n- we don't really have any extra services, I said, um, I said, don't get me wrong, I said, I think the resurrection is really important, like really important, and our church really thinks it's important, I said, but it is a little bit frustrating for me because for people who come on Christmas and Easter, they think it's always exactly the same every time, and so I'm a little uneasy about that because I, I don't want them to think that and get the wrong impression, and, and he just perked right up. He goes, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, I'm not religious. He said, but my wife, she's really religious, and so I want to keep the peace, and, and I'm not quoting ver- verbatim, so if he's here today, um, but the sermon is for him, by the way. The sermon is for basketball dads, okay, and moms. So he said, right? He goes, I, I go to church on Christmas and Easter and maybe Mother's Day because I want to keep the peace. And he said, but I, I can quote what they're going to say. He said, I know every song. I know the prayers. I know the homily. And he said, it's always the same darn thing. But he didn't use that exact language. And he used a lot of other flowery language to talk about what happens on Christmas and Easter. And I thought, we're going to get somewhere in our relationship, right? I got some traction. So we said a lot of other things, dialogue back and forth. I was super encouraged because now we're talking about things other than just basketball. So I believe in God's common grace, and he was God's means of common grace in my life. And so I flip-flopped the sermons today. So today we read the scripture reading, the traditional John 20. I was going to preach that, but as of Thursday night or Friday, I changed my mind. We're going to do the scripture reading for the sermon, and that's Acts chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, basketball dads and moms and everyone else, because Christians will be encouraged... Um, We're going to look at Acts 2, and it's a long sermon that Peter preaches in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus ascends. If we looked at the whole sermon, we might be here till Christmas. So we're going to join the sermon midstream, um, mid-sermon. But it's a great text because it helps us to see the implications. Jesus has been raised from the dead. There are implications, and they affect your life. Okay? There's, there's more to the story. So he spells out the implications, and then, just so you know where it's going, he calls his audience to repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. Okay? So he calls them to change their mind. He calls them uh, for being wrong in what they've done, 
and how they have thought about Jesus. And so we're not just reading the narrative of the resurrection today. We've done that. But there are implications for you and for me. And this is quite the sermon. Um, Probably not for the faint of heart, um, but based upon the language I heard describing church services, um, basketball dad is okay with it. So, day of Pentecost, so some time has passed since Jesus has ascended. Uh, He spent 40 days on earth after his ascension, uh, so people could see him and observe him. So this is after the fact. The crowds are in Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 22. Again, I'm sorry uh, that we're picking it up mid-sermon, but we're going to do that for the sake of whatever's in the oven. Right? Right? I don't want you to... I mean, you're going to be offended today, but I don't want you to be that offended. Acts 2.22, the Apostle Peter says, Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So please pick up on the before your very eyes. This was not a ride at Universal Studios, make-believe. This didn't happen in a land far, far away in a different galaxy. No, before your eyes, you saw these things. We're not talking about make-believe history. We're talking about objective, verifiable, before your eyes, witnesses history. Okay? Not revisionist history. You saw these things. And there were signs and there were wonders and these great extraordinary things. And... If you were to go back and read through the Bible, you would see that it's not normal. It's not normal to have these things. They happen when big events happen, changes happen. God wants to get everyone's attention. And so there are these extraordinary things. And so not only do we have the claims of Jesus and what he did, but they're accompanied by these extraordinary things that authenticate and support and and, and give stamp of approval, if you will. So I really want to emphasize this because he's going to point out implications for their lives. You yourselves know, so it's verified, stamp of authenticity. Verse 23 says, this Jesus, this Jesus, not the one in my heart or in my imagination or of folklore, this Jesus that you yourselves saw, delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here we go. Here's the stinger. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What do you think? Pretty uncomfortable. He's doing this so he can call them to have forgiveness and hope. So he's pointing out the harsh reality so there can be good news for them. And that's my intent as well, not just to be Mr. Mean Guy. That's not Peter's intent. But what he's doing is masterful and important and really simple. Notice he, he even he emphasizes that this is the, the, the predetermined plan of God according to the foreknowledge of God. This wasn't by accident that this happened. 
Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, etc. So this is a planned purpose to have there be crucifixion and resurrection so that believers could be justified. But nonetheless, he points the finger and says, you you crucified him. Notice the contrast is between God and you. And he's telling them they're on the wrong side of history, to use that overly used, misused kind of phrase. But if anybody's ever been on the wrong side of history, it's them. Wow! Amazing! And it's going to be tied to resurrection. This is a resurrection sermon. Implications of the resurrection. That's where he's going. It's absolutely where he's going. Then, then, look there at verse 24. God raised him up. You, contrast, I got ahead of myself, sorry. God raised him up. You, then God. God raised him up, loosing the pangs, the severe pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Love that part. It wasn't possible for him to stay dead. And then what Peter's going to do is Peter's going to give two different supporting arguments from the great King David. Okay, It wasn't possible for him to stay dead, and he's going to cite two different texts, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, that this is built in, this is part of the plan to have a resurrected, eternally reigning forever Messiah. But I can't help myself. Before we go there, because I've read further than just Acts 2, it wasn't possible for him to stay dead. Why would it be impossible for Jesus to stay dead? Well, in chapter 3, when he's preaching, Peter refers to, you have to look, in in chapter 3, verse 14, he refers to Jesus as the holy and righteous one. That's the answer. It's impossible for him to stay dead because he's righteous. Righteous means upholder of law. It's always a legal word. Upholding God's law. If Jesus is the righteous one, he always did the right thing. Always, always, always. The righteous one. And we could look at other texts that talk about this. It's all over the Bible. But for now, I just want you to see, impossible to stay dead because he was righteous. And we could look at other texts where he's raised to prove that he was righteous. And raised to prove that if you, who are unrighteous, front of the line, preacher guy, we who are unrighteous, which from Genesis to Genesis 3 onward, we all have sinned, he is the righteous. So if you trust in Jesus, that's why you're guaranteed resurrection. Because God sees you as if you have perfectly upheld his law. And that's why you're guaranteed resurrection. Impossible to stay dead impossible to stay dead. I so love it. So see, the sermon isn't only for basketball dad. It's for Christians too, because some of you I know are Christians and you're saying, yes. So thank you, by the way, for doing that. You're encouraging my heart. Impossible to stay dead. Let me just spell it out a little bit. If you're trusting in him, it is impossible for you to stay dead. Impossible. It's good news. Gospel news. Okay, we should move on, right? We should move on. Now these two, two supporting arguments from, from David he's going to use because of his audience. In verse 25, For David says concerning him, 
He's going to quote Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And here's what I've highlighted. My flesh, my body also will dwell in hope. And here's the parallel as to why that is true. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave. Or, I highlighted this as well, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. My flesh, no corruption of flesh. Won't see corruption. So then Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he's being respectful, I may say with confidence uh, about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. See what he's doing? We all know David died. Great King David. We all know he died. And he's still dead. And surely his flesh has seen corruption. And yet he spoke in terms of not seeing corruption. By the way, he speaks of an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. It's not him. It wasn't Solomon either because he was buried as well. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 43, also in the city of David. It's the sharp, sharp contrast. It's, the, it's maybe the inconvenient truth. How about verse 30? Being therefore a prophet, one who speaks God's truth, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath. So this is covenant terminology, swearing with an oath. With an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, Second Samuel chapter 7, Davidic covenant. He, David, verse 31 says, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, a greater one, a greater one in the line of David, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And now Peter's going to connect the dots and give him the big picture in verse 32. Look there, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Again, this is not in a, as, this is not in a galaxy far, far away. We're all witnesses that this happened. You can try to suppress the truth, but, but we're, we're witnesses. We saw this happen before our eyes. And, and so Peter's saying, I'm connecting the dots for you. And the great thing is, even though, yes, he's correcting them, and we don't like to be corrected, we don't like that either, but it's, it's them seeing that they're in the wrong so that they can be forgiven. That's where he's going with all this. We're all witnesses. This is amazing to see. How about verse 33? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, ascension talk, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The extraordinary accompaniment that's earlier in the sermon. Now he goes for a second point of defense or, or support from, from David. 
It's going to be Psalm 110. How about verse 34? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord. Now that right there is enough to to cock your head sideways. Psalm 110. There's a reason why the New Testament references Psalm 110 so much. You go, hmm? David said, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord God, he uses the word, the Lord God said to another Lord who's greater than David. How does that work? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So it's not David, somebody greater than him. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the place of honor, the place of reigning and ruling, until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is fascinating because you have in verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which the author to Hebrews uses. So you have the Lord God swearing under oath that you will be, whoever this other Lord is, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek back from Genesis. There's an extraordinary one. God has covenanted okay, with this other Lord. They've had a, a, the solemn, formal agreement. He has covenanted with that other Lord that this will happen absolutely no matter what this will happen and you will be the forever priest. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. This is the kind of thing that Paul picks up on like in Ephesians chapter 1 before the foundation of the world. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Theologians refer to it as the covenant of redemption. Just a shorthand. This is, this is a formal agreement that has happened here, that this is going to happen. Remember, even in our text, the predetermined plan of God to have this unfold this way. Deep into the pool stuff. But his original audience knew exactly what he was talking about. I'm not saying they believed. By the way, a lot of them are going to believe here, and it, it ends well. Easter's going to be nice today. Okay, But... Other times it doesn't end well. The son faithfully carries out his mission. And so the father is going to highly exalt him, right hand, honorable position. He's the obedient son. Philippians chapter 2 says, obedient even to the point of death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the mission, the mission accomplished. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, you've got to do something with that if you're his audience. The Lord said to my Lord, how about verse 36? We should move on. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Notice he's, again, not talking about things in our heart. He's talking about objective historical reality. Know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Prove it. He's been raised from the dead and you've all seen him. That's his argument. Peter's not saying, well, I'm just sharing my truth. 
right? And you have your truth, so-called. He's, he's talking about things that really happen and they're observable. So it demands a response. Here we go. Here's the response it demands. Now, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? I wish everybody always had that response. Sometimes people have that response. In other accounts, we'll see it's not the response. What should should we do? Now again, if Peter were just sharing his truth, they wouldn't need to ask that question. Okay? I heard a celebrity, a religious celebrity this past week talk about faith. Faith as if faith is a subjective religious preference. And that's typically how we use it in our culture. And so it doesn't have to be tied to history. It doesn't have to be tied to reality. And so we can have two opposing faiths because it's not based upon anything anyway. It's just based upon some sort of internal religious preference. Peter's not dealing in that realm, and we know he's not dealing in that realm because the response is, what shall we do? This is, this is our reality, okay? What shall we do? This is a common experience. We're in this together. If we're talking about the one true living God and His predetermined plan, foreknown plan of redemption unfolding with an ultimate forever reigning, forever ruling, promised, anointed king who delivers and forgives, they're asking the right question. What should we do? How about verse 38? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we don't use words like that, and there's all kinds of baggage because of the word repent. And it, it fundamentally means it, it, the word means change your mind. Now, I don't want to make it trite or trivial, but it doesn't mean clean up your act, it doesn't mean get busy. And maybe if you do enough penance, At one point in time, people translated it penance and it led to all kinds of confusion. Metanoia, change your mind. Now, I don't think it's just a mere academic thing. They're cut to the quick in their hearts. It's a deep spiritual reality, but let's make sure we understand what it means. They thought Jesus was blank. And we we could spend a lot of time filling in the blank. Just like you might think Jesus is blank a good teacher, a false prophet. Some people said he was the devil. We get all kinds of things. What, what he's saying is you have to go from thinking Jesus is a, you name it, to believing he is the long-awaited Savior, 
the ultimate forever ruling, reigning, delivering king who alone can be your mediator, forever priest. You got you, you to change your mind, which is hard to do. Spiritually, it's impossible to do. That's why the Bible teaches elsewhere that God has to grant repentance. God's got to work in the heart to get this to happen. We're going to see that it happens here, but we're going to see another text in Acts, not this morning. It doesn't happen. But he calls them to repentance. You were wrong about Jesus, in other words. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You've got a sin problem. You've got to have your sin problem dealt with. It can be forgiven, and forgiveness is found in Jesus. Repenting regarding him. Why does he say be baptized? Well, because baptism is this great picture, symbol, of what is a true spiritual reality. If you believe in Jesus, which is the other side of the coin, when you repent, you believe. You used to think he wasn't the Messiah. Now you think he is the Messiah. When you're believing he's the Messiah, you're united to him. You're united to him. So you've died to sin and you've been raised, guaranteed resurrection if you're united to him. And baptism pictures that, going down and coming out new. So it's a great label. It's a great shorthand for the spiritual reality. And so he can say that to them that way. And that's what's expected of Christians. Uh, to, let me show you through this sign. And, and many times a picture is worth what? A thousand words. Picture's worth a thousand words. And so when people were willing to be baptized, they're saying, I believe Jesus is not just a good teacher. I believe Jesus is the Messiah, long-awaited one, according to the predetermined plan of God. And he's saying to them, if you do that, you're forgiven. Because you're united to him. It's great. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promised in Ezekiel 39. Promised in Joel 2, if we looked at the beginning of the sermon. Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44. This, this new covenant outpouring great grand reality of God. Jeremiah 31, 30 talks about the coming new covenant and it's this extraordinary, unique outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus is that one. At the end of the service today, we're going to obey Jesus and eat and drink in remembrance of him and he calls it the blood of the new covenant the long before promised great grand reality and he is the fulfiller of Jeremiah 31 and so we do it in remembrance of him we're saying we believe Jesus of Nazareth the guy from the wrong side of the tracks is the ultimate forever ruling reigning delivering king How about verse 39? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. His immediate audience, the book of Acts, it's the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. It starts by addressing the immediate Jerusalem audience, so addressing the Jewish people. But he's going to move, the Acts moves on to address the non Jewish people, and they hear the same message. But here in this text, this is for you, Peter says. This promise is for you, and it's for you and your children. It's not just for you. Anyone who would repent. 
but it's also for those who are far off. And if you read the Bible very much, you know the ones who are far off are the non-Jews, the Gentiles. This is the universal promise of God. Acts chapter, or excuse me, Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 uses the same, the same kind of verbiage. We could look at Ephesians 2 if we had time as well. We could even go to Isaiah 57 verse 19 that would also have this to those who are far off. And by the way, that, that's a good point to bring up. This, it's not like we, we get to Matthew and now we include Gentiles. It was always predicted, promised beforehand, even, for example, in Isaiah. Those who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's a great promise. It's a promise that was true then. It's still true today. I love the inclusivity of it. Right? That that's, makes us feel nice, right? We're always told we need to be more inclusive. I feel so inclusive this morning. Right? Christians should feel very inclusive. This is for you. This is for your children. This is not only for you. This is for the people who are far off. This is for everyone. It's very inclusive. Remember, though, the inclusivity also drives the exclusivity. Because in chapter 4, the Apostle Peter dealing in a little bit different setting, we'll have to say in chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So inclusive. But you must repent regarding Jesus. For forgiveness. How about verse 40? Let's keep going and wrap this up. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves how? He's already told them regarding Jesus. That's how you save yourself, from this crooked generation. That's interesting. That's been going, he, the, the Bible uses that kind of ter- terminology since Deuteronomy. The crooked and perverse generation is the generation who hears God speak and sees God do things that are historic and undeniable, and they turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to it. That, that's the crooked and perverse generation. So he says, how can you save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation? It's by believing in him. It's by repenting. There is hope. How about 41? So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? (laughs) Added to the kingdom. Added to the family of the forgiven added to those who are not part of the crooked and perverse generation who see objectively test, objective testimony and say that's not it added added to the body added to the body of Christ added to you get the idea the family of God how could that happen they didn't even have time to go apologize to their spouses for not being perfect husbands They didn't even have time to go ask for forgiveness to all the people they've offended. They didn't have time to go make alms. They didn't have time to go do all this, that, and the other thing. 
trust in Jesus, that's my shorthand, added 3,000. Because God requires perfection of us, true. But since we can't do it, we've got to trust in one who can and did. That's why it's good news. He could not stay dead. (laughs) Amazing. Absolutely amazing. All religions are not created equal. Newsflash. Jesus and Jesus alone could not stay dead. The height of arrogance would be for me to tell you this morning there are many ways to God. If it's not true. Humility would be if this is true, you've got to believe in Jesus as your deliverer Messiah. You've got to believe in Jesus. And then there's hope. And at your funeral, sorry, I hate to bring it up, we can say of you, she or he cannot stay dead. That's the confidence that we have because he could not stay dead. It's great news. Trust in Jesus. Father, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for this different look at the implications of resurrection. We're grateful that Jesus could not stay dead. And we're grateful that even though it couldn't be said of anyone else, we're grateful that it can be said of us if we're united to Him by faith. And so work in hearts bring supernatural change of mind. And for those who are trusting in Jesus, give us encouragement that would cause us to want to do the right thing, that would want us to live in a way that would honor Jesus and not be a, a huge contradiction. We are grateful for these things and your gifts to us. In Jesus' name, amen.